we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 1, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you might think, weren't we in Genesis chapter 1 last week and the week before and the week before that? Um, and I'm, I'm not really clear at this point whether Brian intended for me to be in Genesis chapter 1, but I decided for us to go ahead and do Genesis chapter 1 again on a deeper dive because I think it's the best chapter in the whole Bible. Amen? It's like it's the open of the story. It's like every chapter is the best chapter in the whole Bible. But in my experience in preaching, I, I really have two books and probably two chapters that uh, have captured my heart more than anything else. And I love every book that I've preached, I love every chapter that I've preached, and all the sermons. You want to immerse yourself in it. And the whole Bible is inspired by God. God's people say amen. amen. But... Uh, the two books that have captured me the most are the book of James that we did last year and the book of Genesis. Those would be the, what I would say are, are my favorites. And if there's really a favorite chapter or chapters in the Bible, it's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I think that all of life's answers and all of life, the root of all life's problems are found in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That if you immerse yourself in these chapters, you'll find God. And I think Honestly, the gospel is told in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Everything except for the name of Jesus that you'd fill, the, fill in the blank that you'd need, the blank of the who and uh, the actual incarnation of God would come later. But you see God coming near in this text as profoundly as in any other text. That we see the heartbeat of God. We're drawn into the nature of God here like uh, maybe like nowhere else, but we tend to, to relegate Genesis chapter 1 as the creation story to our kids' spaces and to our mural walls. We see cute pictures and fluffy animals and uh, really neat, fun stories that we can sing song. We see the simplicity of this text, but I'm here to tell you this morning that this is an adult story. Written to, not an adult in that way, but this is, a, this is a big people story. Spoken to, originally, spoken to a group of people that were facing gigantic issues. This is not, it can be a kid's story. We want to teach the simplicity of the gospel and the story of God to our children in as simple a way as possible. But this was not just a simple story to the people that originally heard this story. And I'll say that again and again through our message this morning, that this was originally heard, not read. The people that received this message, in fact, for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years would hear it. And the Hebrew people, even if they had scrolls much later on, or mud tablets and all those kinds of things, even if they had those much later on, they still relied on, and a part of their tradition was to receive it in the hearing. That's why we're sitting in here today. We kind of bark against that, having our own personal faith and reading our Bibles. Great. We need, to, we need to read our Bibles. We need to have a daily time with God where we're, it's a personal thing. But the history of God's tradition was that the message of God would be proclaimed in settings like this where God's people would hear it and those words would roll over them. And I'd like to declare to you today that there's something about, something that happened in the hearing of this story, of this text, 
that was different than the way we receive it. The, he, the original Hebrews, let's say the, the people in the East, the original hearers of this heard it different and focused on some different things. I think some deeper things. I think some more useful things than we as uh, Western readers. So we're, we'll get there in just a second. But I want to take us back to the original context of if you take your mind back to the people... You know the author of this book, the original speaker of it, would have been Moses. But think about the context in which he would deliver this message and the people that would receive it and what they were facing. You see, for 400 years, beginning really right at the end of the book of Genesis, for 400 years, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt. They'd been oppressed by the pharaohs. All the rights and identity had been stripped away. And after 400 long years, God would enter into their story through Moses and Aaron. And he would step by step, blow by blow, release those chains and lead God's people through, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Imagine the scene. God's people have they've seen the hand of God. They've watched the work of God. They've experienced the fear and trembling of God doing a work against their oppressors and setting them free. Now, through the Red Sea, step by step through, they say dry land, there had to have been a little bit of mud, against a wall of water, now on the other side, they're free. They're experiencing for the first time life without their oppressors. In fact, they may still hear, hear the gurgle of some of their oppressors back floating in the water. On the other side of the Red Sea, freedom looked different than what we expect freedom to look like. On the other side of the Red Sea, they looked out at a vast wilderness with the darkness creeping from the desert slowly moving to them. Looking back, they see their oppressors floating in the water. Looking forward, they see darkness. And what do they hear? Ow! This darkness creeps over the land. They looked out on a dark, scary, terrible desert land. And you have to imagine they were scared to death. How are we, these slaves former just a, an hour ago, how are we going to traverse this wilderness? How are we going to face this darkness? How are we going to make it? We've lived in the prison of Egypt for 400 years, and now we're supposed to be a nation. There's millions of them, but we're supposed to be a nation? How's that going to happen? Now imagine with me Moses climbing atop of a rock. I'm reading between the lines here, but allow me some literary license. Moses climbing atop of a rock and thinking, how am I going to 
settle the hearts of these people. As a prophet, as a leader, as a general, what am I going to give them that's going to, one, keep them from swimming across the Red Sea and going back? How am I going to move them forward? How am I going to speak to their fears, to their needs, and motivate their feet to press forward? What Moses does not say, what he doesn't do, is give them a little pep talk. He's not their cheerleader. One, his, his skirt was longer, so <laughs> it was a robe, not a skirt. He's not their cheerleader. He doesn't give them the power of positive thinking. If you can think it, you can do it. No, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't center his thoughts and his energies on them. You've got the power to do whatever you will to do. No, Moses doesn't do that. Moses climbs atop a rock into a people dripping wet from the steam of the sea. Scared to death, babies in tow, hearts dropping. Moses stands atop a rock and speaks these words. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God... God, God, baby in tow, hearts sinking, scared to death, dripping wet, what do they need more than anything else? Food? No. Jesus would say, man can't live on bread alone, but God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the spirit of who? God hovered over the waters. And then God spoke. And God, and God, and God, and God and God, and God. Hold on, this is, it sounds a little churchy, though. Because we normally stop there. We'll say to people who are facing, whatever, illness or stress or marriage conflict or whatever, you just got to believe in God. I mean, it's really all about God, isn't it? Go with God. If you just do what God tells you to do, then everything's, and we'll wear the name of God out. And I said, they had to have heard when, they, when Moses said, in the beginning, God, his name was lifted up. But often in the church world, I'm afraid we bring it down. He was elevated in the, from the mouth of Moses, but often we trivialize. I don't want to bark on us too much, but often we trivialize. We stop there. If you just, and there's always a just that kind of hangs in the air. If you just walk with God, God has a purpose. One of the worst things you can say to somebody who's laying in a hospital bed, God has a plan. Ugh. Pass the plate. <laughs> in the beginning, God, for him, was lifted up. But I wonder... If what hangs in the air is, what does that mean for us? If that the next generation is asking, 
Okay, when you say God, follow God, God is, what good is that for me in my life? Often we stop short of applying God, but Moses doesn't stop there. He goes through the days of creation, but I want you to see the structure of the way Moses presents God first. You look, we'll take, kind of take a 40,000 foot view of what's going on in this section. Because as we read the days of creation starting with in the beginning God, and then he spoke and he created, and then he created and he spoke and he spoke and he created, we see, we read rather, the details of that creation. So we'll focus on, oh, light. Yeah, there wasn't light before. I wonder what star that was. Huh, that's really interesting. We look up at the stars and I'm captivated. The stars sure are amazing. Yeah. We'll see the, uh, the starts creating the animals. And so I wonder what day the bats were created because those rascals have cost us some money on this campus, man. Maybe you didn't create them on a day. What kind of animal are they? Is it a cat or a bird? Are those different days? We focus on the creation. I've been at this for a long time. And we either take this first chapter of the Bible as an historical account, which there's some history here, but this isn't meant to be an historical account. The people that received this the first time didn't need the history. They knew that the earth was created by their God. In fact, the cultures that surrounded them all believed in a creation story, and a lot of them are similar to this, the creation that's day by day or some sort of thing just like that. This isn't meant to be a proof text either because there wasn't a person standing there or even their babies in their arms that needed the proof that Jehovah God was real. This wasn't an apologetic study. It certainly wasn't biology. The idea wasn't that they would look at this text and say, I wonder how veins came about. I wonder whether it was evolution or God just zapped man into existence. We tend in our reading to focus on the details and the creation while the hearer They back up, and as the words rolled out of Moses' mouth over God's people, then we get lost in the details. This is what they would hear. And God, and God, and God, and God, and God. I'm a very novice uh, opera fan. Uh, Have been for years. My aunt, actually I inherited this, my aunt... uh, Studied at S- studied opera at SMU on a full scholarship way, way back when. She kind of dropped. I started to hear little things about it and then got into it. Pavarotti and Andre Borcelli. I uh, used to go to the opera quite a bit when I lived overseas. The interesting thing about, at least me as an opera fan, especially starting that journey overseas, was I, because I was in another foreign country, I didn't get, uh, we didn't, the interpretation of the opera wasn't in English. So I didn't even have the story. And the first operas that I saw, it certainly wasn't about me really understanding. I try to pick through a little bit of what's going on in the story. Somebody's upset and then they're not upset. No, somebody's laying down and they're dead. And then somebody else, that kind of thing. But the operas that I saw really for me were designed as like, I'm, I'm captivated by this 
miraculous human instrument on this stage. All eyes are on Othello or whoever it is. All eyes are on them. So look at the expression on their face. How are they able to do that? It's all about them. And the details are lost. And maybe I'm listening to it or watching it wrong. But often as I'm listening, I'm captivated by the instrument. I get the sense, and from my reading, that the, the particulars of the creation story really are the props on the stage. And God is the singer. God is the actor. And when you're talking about the animals or the stars or anything else, it's not about those. It's all about him. And that little by little, God's people, as they heard this, they'd be drawn not just to captivated by the fact that there's a God, but the presentation of God. And the presentation of God through this text. And I want you to, when you go back and read it, I want you to see this. That God appears, curtains open. God appears, and then step by step, he moves closer and closer to his creation. It's a romantic drama. Before the end, as we enter into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God is chest to chest, mouth to mouth. In fact, there is a mouth to mouth. He breathed into Adam the breath of life, right? It's intimate. It's romantic. It's close. I'm looking at some of the, the expressions on our men's faces. They're like, oh, man, I don't, this is awkward. <laughs> it's going to get more awkward in just a minute. Closer and closer and closer and closer. And this sets, that sets Genesis 1 apart from the gods of all the other cultures. And that's what I would say is a huge goal of Moses. Because God's people for 400 years had received this cultural viewpoint of a God who is separate from his people. Or gods that were separate from their people. They would be entombed, enshrined. It's often some far off location. I'd see God is over there. God is always over there. And the thunder rolls and the lightning claps and the sense is that God's coming. And what do they do? The cultures of the world, universally, when God comes near, what do they do? <laughs> they run. <laughs> they run and hide. But God's people, as they receive it, they hear the coming of God in Genesis chapter 1. They're captivated by him. They're in awe of him. And God, and God, and God, and God. Until God invites them chest to chest. His mouth on their ear. Before you get to chapter, through chapter 2, where's God? He's, he's, not in a, he's not in a temple. He's not in a pyramid. He's not off in some cloud. Before the end of chapter 2, they're walking with God 
In the cool of the day, God is walking with them. He's weeping with them. He's present with them. You see the drama. You see the romance in this. You see, the purpose of Moses isn't to give you history, certainly not to give you biology. You're going to have all kinds of problems if you, if you lean on, on those primarily. He wants you to see God. Not the creature as much as the creator. But the next thing is we drill down a little bit deeper. We're going to read a couple of verses. And I know some of you are thinking, man, we got to get eyes on a text. The next thing I think is the most profound. And it's very rabbinical. This is the way we read it. Once again, we're focused on the details. They heard it different. The focus was on God. But the Hebrew heard this text different than we hear it. As they heard the days of creation, they would sense what can only be described and what's consistently described by the Hebrews as a, uh, an emerging rhythm, a drumbeat. Begin in verse 9. He says this, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so... God called the dry land to earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing in which... Uh, is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. See, you can't really catch it. The Hebrew, though, would hear a rhythm emerging that if you speed up the text, it would sound like this. And God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. And God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. And God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. Everything else would bleed together, and the Hebrew would hear. It's kind of like a, the, in the morning in the fall when the marching band is practicing out at the school field. And you wake up, and you kind of feel it. You're, you start tapping your chest. That's nice. The closer you get to Friday night, you're standing in the bleachers and the crowd starts swaying. And before long, everybody's just hitting it. The rhythm calls you in, or the theme song of a, of a movie as it is introduced early on and then reemerges and then repeats and moves our emotion. With a purpose. This rhythm has a purpose. It's not just to make them feel good. But before the Hebrew was finished, they would be tapping their feet, swaying their hips, and called into the movement, the rhythm of a life lived with God. What's that rhythm? When God speaks... His creation 
responds, and it is, what is it? It's good. When God speaks, when God reveals his will, when his heart pours forth, and I respond, I shift my life, what happens? It is good. See, there's one thing through this. God emerges. He speaks. I respond, and it is good that a life lived in rhythm with the voice of God, with the heart of God, with the presence of God, with the will of God, equals, brings about goodness. How do you define goodness? Health. Wholeness. Productivity, not the way your boss would say productivity. Fruitfulness. Connection. Things work together. Unity. That a life lived in rhythm to the voice of God, to the presence of God, to the work of God is good. A life lived outside of the rhythm of God quite obviously equals something other than good. As you look across the landscape of your life, what does James say? Okay, I told you it was my favorite book. What does James say? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If every good and perfect thing comes from above, if it comes from our God, if goodness is found in the rhythm of a relationship with God, then everything that is bad in your life can be traced back. I guarantee you, you'll find a disconnection with God. You'll find the absence of God in that thing. Whatever's not working in your life, I guarantee you, you look and ask the question, is God in that? Was God before that? Did God speak that? Is that according to the will of God? And if it's broken, if it's falling apart, the answer will be no. Because when God speaks and I move, it is good. Let this soak over your life lived in rhythm. Sounds like a dance, doesn't it? A life lived in rhythm. to the will of God will be good. What I don't want you to hear, don't misinterpret. So those of you who have been in church for a while will hear, the reason why my life sucks is because I, I'm not obedient. There is obedience in this, mind you. But the call isn't just that you would do what God says so that he'll give you what he's got. This isn't obey and prosper theology. And this is theology. This isn't obey and prosper. This isn't the, uh, what is it, the, um, the bribery of, here God, I'll give you, I'll tithe, so. All right, I'll cut off my mistress, so. All right, I'll stop doing this, so. All right, I'll start doing this, so. Give me, give me God. You owe me. This isn't that. Well, that's, that's still focused on the details and focused on creation for what we can get from God that's still separate from God and you could almost read that into the days of creation because the creatures receive the will of God and do the will of God and it 
is good. But when he creates man, things appear to be different because man's in the likeness of God. And in the likeness of God, he calls them to be with him. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, we see a major difference. God's not hanging out with the baboons. Let's be He's not stomping around with the hippopotamuses. I mean, he's, he's present, but he's not intimately related to any of those creatures. We can go into the whys and hows, but look, he speaks it so, and it's good. God orders their lives, but for us, it's beyond just order and obedience. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work he had done in all of creation. And from that time forth, the Sabbath would be a universal humankind institution in which God invites his people. Not to chill over a cold one and watch the game. Sabbath isn't about just kicking back, catching some rays, and doing nothing. You can do that. That's great. You need that. You need to do nothing. You need to chill. Some of you really need to chill. But the Sabbath is an invitation for God's people to be separate from the creation from the creative work, and the invitation is that we would join with God, that we'd be with him. Was it Jesus, when he calls the disciples, he said he called the 12, names them one by one, that they might be with him, close, that God wants connection with you, intimacy with you. The difference is that this rhythm for you is different than the rest of creation and that they're just responsive, but that you are in step with God. The closeness that Jesus describes in John chapter 15 in the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The branch that's removed from the vine does what? It dies. The branch that is connected to this goes all the way back. God's desire was always for you to live in deep, abiding connection with him. The branch that's connected with God does what? Bears fruit. It thrives. We'd call this matrix abiding and thriving. The degree to which you abide with God, the degree to which your chest is pressed against his chest and his mouth is on your ear and your feet move to the tempo of his voice and his heartbeat is the degree to which you will launch out in health and wholeness and joy. God has called you to be heart to heart, mouth to ear, to be in close, intimate connection with him, out of which we will be launched into a life of power, a life of success, a life of overcoming, a life of strength. You were created for that. That's how the 
mechanism of your being. That's how you're wired. That's how you're put together. And if that's the case, I believe you're reading Genesis chapter 1, you were created for that. God didn't just call and say, I would like it. Would you dance with me? How many of you guys raise your hand? Have you ever asked somebody to dance or couple skate at the, uh, at the skating ring that somebody said no? Raise your hand for me real quick. How many times? Thank you, Lou. I appreciate that. Me never. I, it's never happened. Like this invitation that God makes for you to join with him. Jesus makes clear what happens to the branch. It's cut off and it's burned. This less of a punishment and more of a why bother. A life lived in disconnection with God will equal death. That's the natural order of things. You were created to thrive in the presence of God. Everything, take your life as a whole. If you say, I just fell out of step, I fell out of whack, just something's missing. And trace it back, could that thing that's missing be the essence of your life? If you were created to dwell in the presence of God, to abide with him as Jesus says, and you're not, no wonder you're broken. So I feel so empty. Maybe you feel empty because you're empty. <laughs> that could be it. Some of my marriage just isn't working. I don't know what else. I don't know what else to do, man. I've tried pills and books and therapy. Your marriage was created to thrive in and launch through the presence of God. So my kids are a mess. What could be missing? A life lived in rhythm with God, chest to chest, ear to Mouth, stepping to the heartbeat of God, will bring wholeness, will bring fullness, will bring success, will bring power. Heart to heart, mouth to ear. This is just reading your Bible. This is getting with God and letting him lead you. I'd say as we're as we're coming down off of this, and band, you can you can come up. I'm gonna talk heart to heart with you for just a minute. Well, first of all, this is more than just going to church. So you see through the progression of the text, God creates the heavens and the earth, but that doesn't make them good. So just because you were created by God doesn't make you good. I don't care what your third grade teacher told you. Mine did not tell me I was good, by the way. Just because you were created by God doesn't make you good. Because what? Created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a hot mess. It was in total disarray. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. Just because you're in church and kind of near God does not make things okay. You need to get this. Going to church, what the, what, what's the statement? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a hen house makes you a chicken. This is not enough to be 
near God. The call by the end of the chapter is that God said, come on, you're going to do this thing. You sat there. You knew this was going to happen. Like he pulls you up, and he says, all right, I want a life. I want your life to be, we're not going to go chest. Well, we can go chest. We can hug. Whoa. <laughs> I told you it was going to get awkward. A life lived in rhythm with God. I'd say some of you sitting here today have nothing left to lose. What are you afraid of? That God's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do? He is. Men, isn't that what dancing is from the beginning? I don't want to do this, but here we go. Every time my wife has, has taken me dancing, it's been the thing I don't want to do. Making my body work in ways that don't feel comfortable. What do you have to lose? Like some of you, the, the ink is about to dry on the paper, and you're about to give it all away. Can, can I counsel you? Can I say try God? Let God move you. Set your decisions. Face your crises. Scope out your opportunities from a place of fullness from the presence of God. In step with God and make a commitment today that you will live your life in rhythm, abiding, and launching. How would that change the next crisis that you face if you faced it full rather than empty? How would that change the next decision you make if you made that decision full with God's mouth on your ear? How would that change? Opportunities and obstacles. If you made those decisions and faced those things with God at your side, Him leading your steps, that has to, that has to invigorate you. And I pray that it does. If you would, would you stand and let me pray over you? As we receive this, as we see You move from just creating to engaging your creation and then inviting your people into an intimate exchange and relationship with you. I pray, oh God, that we, your people in this room today, would long to have you lead us into that intimacy. Would you speak your word over our marriages? Would you speak your truth over our decisions? Would you, in a place chest to chest, mouth to ear, speak into the opportunities and obstacles of our lives? And would you change our reality? I pray, oh God, in Jesus' name.